How's everyone doing today? I will apologize if it was rough coming in. It's my fault. I, I think I spoke too long. It will never happen again. If you have a problem, come see me about it. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, we do apologize. Uh, who's excited for the Super Bowl? I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that my dad is going to throw a football next weekend. I just feel like it's going to happen. I think the Chiefs are going to win. I'm not going to lie. Uh, some of you guys know it's pretty cool. I don't know. I'm sure there have been, but a guy from Rochester, Stony Creek, Eric Fisher from Central Michigan University playing left tackle for the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. So we got to, I'm rooting for the Chiefs. I wish he could have got me tickets because I'm not going to lie. I would rather be there in Miami for the Super Bowl. But I'm going to be here. It's going to be awesome, and everyone should come. No, it will be super fun, so we'll see you guys next week. But, hey, I'm really excited. We're wrapping up a series called Sermon from the Seats, which has just been incredible over the last four weeks, hearing stories uh, from people that are attending Kensington and what the Lord is doing through their lives. And without exception, I, I think today is just another powerful story. And really in theme, uh, you might have saw it on the, the way in, we have a story from uh, Michael and Gina Spen, and we're going to get to it. I'm going to teach a little bit before them, but just... They have a book called The Color of Rain. It was actually a New York Times bestseller. You can get it in the lobby after. You'll probably want to after the service and, and seeing their story. But it was interesting. I started reading that book this week, working on this talk, and this phrase just kept reiterating over and over in my head um, about like just reading their story and, and just the testimony that the Lord had in it. And, and this phrase was this idea of it gets better. It gets better. Um, and what you'll see in their story, and I think what we all experience in life, is we go through storms, we go through hard things, and there's moments of storms, they, they come and they pass, and whether you're in one, you're going to go into one again, or you're going to come out of one, like we all know what it's like to be in a storm, but I believe this, there's reality in the kingdom of God and walking with Jesus is there's this hope that it gets better. And I, and I really thought of it in this idea like this, like if you've ever been in a tunnel, you've heard the expression, like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think what we're commonly kind of drawn into are the temptation of when you're in the middle of a tunnel, when you're in the middle of a cave, when you're in the middle of a storm, is you start to become overwhelmed by the darkness around you instead of the light that might be in front of you. And so what I think happens is you actually start losing hope. You ever been in a season where it feels like, I don't know if I'll ever get out of this or I'll ever regain my life after this. And I think you'll see that in the story. But I always even remember for me in a, in a small way when I went up and I like how in the video they said faith in football because I feel like if you come to Orient, it's like faith in football every weekend, which it will be again right now. And uh, there is... I, I was thinking about this place of like, in a, in a small, like humorous way, like where it just feels like you're in a tunnel. And I was thinking about when I went up to college and, and uh, started playing football at Central Michigan University, it's your first time for a, for a lot of people, you, you know, you're away from home, you're not, you're, you're meeting new people. And I remember like the workouts were so intense and so hard, you don't know anyone. And I remember even being with like my parents a few weeks or a month after I'd been up there in the summer, because you had to go up there early for workouts and just being emotional going back. Cause I'm like, I don't know if I like can get through this. this the workouts are insane. It's just so hard, and it was this new season of life where even as we got in the training camp, imagine, you know, we're waking up at 5 a.m., we're going till 10 p.m. every night, it's about 17 days, you do lose track of days because it just, everything blends together, and it, it gets to the point where you're so exhausted. I remember being a freshman walking from the dorms at 5 a.m. to practice, and cars, just a few of them are going by on East Broomfield, if you know, up at Central Michigan. So I'm walking across, and I remember thinking, you're like in this tunnel of darkness, and you're just like, we have to get to game one. Like, that's, 
that's the light at the end of the tunnel of that season. And this is how bad it got. I remember having the thought as cars were going by, I wonder if I could stick my leg out and the car would hit me in such a way that I'd be injured for two weeks but be back in time for the game. So I could just miss, you know what I mean? Like that's the thought I'm having at 5 a.m. of like, should I just like jump out in front of a car? That's when you know you're in a rough patch. Uh, but obviously it's a joke, but I remember in that season being like, I don't know if I can make it through this. And obviously that's just a microcosm of life where you're in this place of maybe it's mental health or emotional or going through a loss or divorce or the loss of a baby or a miscarriage. And you're in this season of heavy grief and it feels like, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. And I don't know what to do within that. I remember even with our central class, I think we had 30, 27 to 31 recruits. Only 10 of us ended up graduating because it just was hard to, to make it through it and, and want to stick through the, the grind and the hard work. And I, you know, I, it was interesting thinking about the idea of it gets better. I was thinking about my college career. I remember like by my senior year, right? Like if I would have quit in that moment within those years at Central, like Jesus became real to me. I met my wife, Jenna. Football ended up going pretty well. And I remember by my senior year, we had an event before my senior year called Fields of Faith with FCA. And we opened up Kelly Shore Stadium, the football stadium at Central. And we invited all the high schools and people on campus to come and hear a gospel message. And it was one of the first times I got to preach to 1,500 people in the football stadium and share the gospel. And it was like, man, there's sometimes there's so much life when you get through the cave. But it's easy in the moment, the temptation is that becomes your reality. You're like, I don't know life through this. And I just felt like today, like as I was preparing the message, the Lord just kept saying to me, like, let people know, like, it gets better. And to hold on to me and to let me be hope. Because what you'll discover is not only is Jesus the light at the end of the tunnel, you might not notice it right now, but he's the light that surrounds you in the midst of the tunnel. And you might think you're alone in the cave, but he's with you in the cave. And I think take heart in this. this is, I'm just going to give you two points really quick, and I'm going to try to be quick for real. And uh, here's the first point, that your current season is not the whole story. It's just a chapter. And when you're in a storm or you win a hard season, it's easy to think, man, this chapter is the whole thing. But really, it's just a chapter, and there's going to be another chapter that tells the story of your life. And even this chapter might prepare the story for what's coming next. It says this in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I love this. The Passion Translation says it like this. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives, for we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. Do you believe that? I remember having this moment uh, with my family. We went down to Texas. We were working with, uh, some of you might have known them. They've, been, they've spoken here, Jamie and Donna Winship. And we went down to uh, learn from them and some prayer techniques. And a large part of what we were doing then there was practicing hearing God's voice. And so at the end of the day of day one, we like prayed with certain prayer like practitioners or leading us through these guided prayer like experiences. And so I remember at the end of the day, we were having dinner and we all shared because we were in different groups about what we felt like the Lord was showing us. And the question that prompted our prayers that day that we were talking about was this question. You can write it down and take it to the Lord if you want. But what we were meditating and, and, and really contemplating on was this idea. And uh, the question was, is there anything in my life that's hindering me from receiving from God or receiving his love? Is there anything hindering me from receiving? Because you don't grow in the kingdom of God by achieving 
or by performing, it's by your posture and it's by receiving. And so it was interesting. My dad said he went and had this question, and it was, it was interesting because many of you guys know my dad's like a self-prescribed skeptic, if you've ever heard him speak. And he, what came to his mind, he said, we prayed this, and we kind of just listened to solitude. And he said, the word that really just came to my mind and we were just praying through was this, this word of unbelief. And so obviously, some beliefs are learned, right? And so the next question was, well, where did that unbelief enter your life? And my dad went on the share when we were out to eat. He was thinking of this time, which I'd never heard about, when his parents had gotten divorced. They lived in New Jersey, and he went with his mom because they moved to Ohio. And he said, I remember being in the car with my mom in the back seat, looking out the window and thinking, God, if you really cared and loved me, why would you allow this to happen to my family? That this like had a moment, right, where it's like, can I trust you? And so then the next question was, well, what's the truth you want me to know? What do you want me to know about this? Where were you in that moment? And so my dad shared, we were out to eat, he said, I, it was interesting, I started thinking in my mind of the family room I grew up in, and I imagined my whole family there, and I imagined Jesus being in the family room with us. And it was like his arms got really long and wrapped around our whole family. And he felt like Jesus said, I've always been with you, I've been looking after you, and then the truth was, I wasn't abandoning you, I was protecting you. If, you, if your mom would have stayed married to your dad, you would have ended up just like him, who was a man who was an alcoholic, had multiple affairs, and in the places he felt abandoned by God, God was showing him, I was protecting you from someone who was really hurtful, even physically abusive. And so you can imagine in that season, like the tunnel of that, right? Of like, God, what are you doing? I, you know, obviously my dad's one of my close friends now, and he's shared stories with me through high school and through middle school of being like, God, where are you? But here's the truth, that chapter wasn't the whole story, because you guys, and I get to see a lot of the story of my parents being married, and this boy who came from a broken family, my parents now get to experience teaching on marriage and family to the country, through radio and, and through books. And it'd be so tragic for all of us, you look at that and you're like, man, that chapter is not the whole story. And even in the places of pain, even in the places of loss, we serve a God who can work things together not in a way that you forget that loss, but that loss actually shapes you and it grows you and there can be healing and there can be comfort. And so, take heart today. It gets better. The current chapter you're in isn't the whole story and there's another chapter after it. And God wants to write something beautiful through your life. That's not the promise of no pain. It's not the promise of perfect or everything going your way, but it's the promise of peace and comfort and purpose in the midst of the tunnel, that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that it gets better. Point number two is this, you can't control your season, but you can control your song. Heard that for the first time I ever hearing a pastor in New York speak, Carl Lentz, and man, I thought that was so good. You can't control your season, but you can control your song. You can't control the storm around you. You can't control what's going on with you. But here's a truth that you can take heart in. You always can control your reaction. You always can control your response. You always can control your song. Even this point, like I was thinking even, even in the back as I was saying it, it's like we've all been in seasons where it's crazy and you're in the car and you literally can pick the song you want to play. You know what I mean? Like you can turn on and it's the same way in life. That doesn't mean you don't grieve. It doesn't mean you don't feel the pain, but you can choose courage. And I would say this, 
even more so and why it's important to jump into a group and have people around you that will pull you up and build you up. Because I know for me, there's certain places where I don't have the strength. But through Jesus and through the people around you, man, surround yourself with people that will lift you up. I shared this before a few years ago, and I thought it fits so well for today uh, by Naval Admiral William McRaven. Uh, he was a SEAL and alma mater, and he spoke to the graduates of like the Navy SEAL uh, camp and their training, and he was talking about lessons he learned from being a Navy SEAL, and he said this. Uh, this was lesson number nine. Um, it said this, the ninth week of training is referred to as hell week. It is a six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the mud flats. The mud flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. I started reading this, and I realized it's just a tiny bit more intense than Central Michigan football. <laughs> tiny bit. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flats, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. So you guys can imagine this. I, I don't have any experience of being in mud up to my neck and being bone-chilling and holding something above my head. And then the added pressure of the instructors, not encouraging you, but anyone who's had some intense coaches know they're just trying to get them to quit says, the chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night, one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, Washington, Lincoln, King, Mandela, even a young girl from Pakistan. One person can change the world by giving people hope. Lesson number nine. If you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. And I think there's so much power in that. Because when I read that, I think there's two things that stand out. The first thing is the power of community. The power of even just one person starting to think differently and carry hope. And the power of hope becoming contagious. And if you need hope today and you don't have anyone, man... There's enough hope in Jesus, and I'm sure there's someone around you in your life that can give you hope when you need it. And the other thing that's powerful is when you're up to your head in muds, and maybe that's metaphorical for your life right now, choose the song of hope. And I would even say this, more than that, man, choose a song of worship. 
that even today when we start with three songs, we're not just singing songs, but we're reminding ourselves and we're responding to the goodness and the nature of God. There's something powerful about worshiping in the storm, worshiping when things are hard. Why? Not because it's changing who God is, but it's reminding ourselves of who God is because it's easy when you're in the tunnel to start being overwhelmed by the tunnel, but in the tunnel, you need to be militant and reminding yourself of the goodness and the nature of who God is. And when we worship, we are reminding ourselves of his faithfulness. We were reminding ourselves of his character. We're shifting our eyes away from the storm and we're fixing our eyes upon the Savior. And we're starting to become overwhelmed by the love and the goodness of God rather than the tragedy or the storm that's around us. I remember even talking with my mom when her sister passed away of lung cancer. She said that year when she would worship, every time she came to worship Jesus, she would just weep and said like, it was like the music was like healing balm to my soul that it was so intimate and connecting with God, it just healed her heart in a way that was so powerful that there's something powerful to worship while you wait. And so you might not be able to choose your season, but you can choose your song. And I hope today you know this, man, it gets better. That whatever you're going through, cling to Jesus, grab a hold of him, grab a hold of someone to lift you up and know that what you're going through will not be wasted. It will not be in vain. But Jesus is your ever-present hope, your anchor for your soul, your refuge in the midst of whatever you're going through. And so as we watch this video based on the, the life of uh, Gina and Michael Spen, you can get the book and it's actually a Hallmark movie. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if I trust Hallmark movies, but I'm sure it's good. That's not nice. But, uh, man, take in this story and, and see the power. Because I think there's so many things that I realize watching this story. There's so many times where they could have turned back. But you see the hand of God on their life. And you see the hope that they bring. And even now, you'll see their life isn't perfect. But I was blown away by the hope, the joy, and the love that they carry for one another. And as we do that, I'm going to invite the ushers to come down. We are going to receive the offering. So if you want to give, please go ahead and do that right now. You know your giving impacts so much locally and globally. Um, you can give through text, through the prompts on the screen, or give online as well. But enjoy this story, man, and, and, and see what it looks like for two people to hold on to hope in the midst of tragedy. Rain, in general, kind of gets a bad rap. It means the end of plans and the end of barbecues and the end of golf games. The truth is that there's color in every drop of rain. Every color of the rainbow, every color that God has created, like a prism, go right through that raindrop. And if you look at it just right, you can see beautiful color. I met Kathy in Chicago. Um, she had just graduated from Michigan State. We were both working downtown, and we quickly fell in love and got married. We had uh, three kids, small children under the age of nine, the dog in the yard. Uh, we were living the suburban life. One day after picking up the kids from school, um, Kathy kind of lingered in the garage, uh, and I went to her and she said, I just had this horrible headache. Um, something that was different from anything she'd ever experienced before. And then it went away. And then the day after that, it, it came back and it, it wouldn't go away. And 
after several days of, of excruciating headaches, you know, wh where do you go? What do you do when your wife has a headache? What doctor do you go see? You know, so we just we just walked into the ER um, on a Friday night, not knowing what we were dealing with. And by Sunday, they had diagnosed her with inoperable brain cancer, and she had lost all use of the left side of her body that quickly. We uh, didn't have much time to battle that disease. It was glioblastoma in the thalamus, inoperable. And uh, 17 days later, she passed away. Matt and I met at Michigan State um, in our sophomore year. We were both working at the State News. We started dating and fell in love and got engaged. And just after we both turned 23, we got married. Matt found, um, or felt, I should say, a lump in his leg. and. He immediately thought he needed to go get that checked out, and um, sure enough, uh, after two surgeries, it was discovered that he had a rare form of cancer called leiomyosarcoma. For about three years, he lived with the disease, and um, for the first two, really quite healthy and and strong, and um, and then you know the, the battle got a little more difficult in the end, but ultimately um, he succumbed to the disease on Christmas Day of 2005. With Matt, throughout the journey, he would say, you know, that having cancer was a win-win situation. But he truly believed that because he said, you know, if I live to be 100 and we have a long life together, he said that's obviously a win. He said, but if God takes me home, he said. That's a win, he said, I, I consider that a victory. Life without Matt um, was so very different. Um, the house was quiet. I felt like I'd lost my purpose. Um, I had just deep sadness and, and the grief that's overwhelming at times. And, um, but I knew that every day I had to get up and take care of two little boys and they needed me and they needed me to be strong and so, um, yeah, it was, it was a different time. Kathy and I began to, in what little time we had and through the pain and discomfort that she had, we, we started to say things to each other that husbands and wives do in those circumstances. And she had been quiet for a moment, dealing with the pain and had her eyes closed. And out of the blue, she said, Michael, call Gina Kell. It was important for me to attend that funeral. I, I knew that Kathy had actually been to Matt's funeral. Walking into that funeral home, I had my best friend, Colleen, by my side. Just in a few minutes, um, this man kind of taps me on the shoulder, and he says, are, are you Gina Kell? And I, I look at him, I'm like, well, yes. And immediately, I realized this is Michael Spain. And I said, do you mind if we speak for a moment? We sat down off to the side, and um, he looked at me, and he said, tell me about your kids. How are they? Are they OK? And I, I knew what he needed to hear in that moment. I mean, he just wanted to know that he, his kids were going to be okay and that he was going to be okay. And then we were quiet for a moment, and I looked around at the staring eyes, and I said, you know, um, this place is filled with hundreds of people from my life, but I think you're the only one I know here tonight. And she just smiled at me and nodded, and she said, Yep. I was working at the church office. While I was there, there was this 
talk about this project in the atrium of the church and wanting to get it redone. And I'd heard that Michael was a graphic artist, so I called upon him to help with the project. And the next thing you knew, we were working on this project together for the church. Out of the blue, I get an email from Gina saying, uh, why don't we get the kids together uh, for dinner? We cooked a little bit, and the kids played a little bit, and then we sat down for dinner. For the first time, it, was, it felt normal. We had a normal dinner. We started to get on the phone with one another after we put our kids to bed. And so we, we began to get to know each other between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. It was so great to hear her voice on the phone every night. It was so comforting. We were friends. We were just friends. The kids were getting along so great. They were uh, wanting, they were asking for sleepovers and so forth and, and let's go here and let's go there together. It took a, a little while, but all of a sudden, it's sort of as the fog of grief begins to lift, you look over and you go, oh, she, she's a woman. <laughs> Wait a minute. She's kind of cute. He asked me on a date at some point, and it was the one and only date that we ever had. But it was a great date. It was a great date. That was about the only time that we spent just the two of us. It was always the seven of us. By then, we had realized that this was something new. Right after my wife died, I was cooking in the kitchen, and my three kids were huddled in, in the living room, and I could see them, and, and they wouldn't tell me what they were working on, but they presented me with a contract. The contract said, I, Daddy Spain, do hereby promise to never, ever, ever get married again to another woman. And then now it's a year and a half, or I don't, almost two years later, and the Kell family and the Spain family are now have spending every day together. We talked about it, and then we presented it to the kids, and we said, what would you think if we decided to get married and make one big family out of this? One of my kids raced to the desk and, and pulled out the contract, and I, I said, what are you doing? And she looked at me and said, I have to tear this up. And I said, no, no, I don't want you to tear it up. She said, no, we have to tear it up, otherwise you have to go to jail. <laughs> and I thought, the fact that she wants, you know, it's important to her to tear that up. I knew that the kids were on board. The wedding was a backyard wedding at my parents' house, and our pastor, who had been through this entire cancer journey with my husband, Matt, and, um, who really ultimately had a hand in bringing us together uh, was sort of officiating the ceremony in the backyard. And we were surrounded by 120 of our closest friends and family. All of these people who gathered to celebrate our marriage were the same groups of people who had gathered at the funerals just two years earlier. There was this overwhelming sense of we need to do something to give back. There's people here who really have hearts to to want to pour out, and so let's give them an outlet to do that. Let's take sort of what happened to us and let's transition all of that into an organization that we can create that will give back to people that we know are struggling with cancer, but not just with the diagnosis and the disease itself, but are struggling financially. We started the New Day Foundation for Families in 2007. It's in the memory of both Matt and Kathy. And the mission of the organization is to provide financial support 
and emotional resources to families who are going through a cancer battle. We were at one of our annual fundraisers for the foundation, and we had invited a gentleman who had just lost his wife and his two children to be our guests and sit at our table. Afterwards, he came to us with tears in his eyes and he hugged us and he said, um, it was so wonderful to be able to glimpse the future. Your children are full of faith and full of joy. They're just normal kids and they're several years ahead of me in this journey. And it just brought me comfort to know that my kids are gonna be okay. And on the way home from that, Jean and I were, were driving and I said to her, you know, we can't have dinner with everybody. And there are people who may be blessed by hearing a story of hope. The whole idea was that I was gonna go down to Florida for three weeks and stay in a family member's condo and I was gonna write a book in three weeks. I walked into a Barnes and Noble and it was a two-story Barnes and Noble and I went up the escalator and at the top of the escalator was this table as if God presented it to me with a sign on it that said how to write a book and it was filled with books about how to write a book. I saw you could write a book in dual first person author. It showed up on several books and so I called him and I said, guess what? Not only do you have the five kids, but you're going to write your own chapters. And so that was how that I'm like, what, what, and, and what, what time's my flight? <laughs> I thought, okay, so. And, well, and a three-week project turned into really a two-year project. It took us two years and a lot of head-scratching. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Um, this is very time-consuming. It's also, it's also very, you know, it's cathartic and therapeutic, but it, it really was difficult to write some of those chapters. Cancer is, um, it's been a huge part of our life. Um, not only have we lost our spouses to cancer and run a nonprofit where we work with families every day who are affected by cancer. Um, it hit home again for us with our son, Sam, who four years ago was diagnosed with glioblastoma. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I was shattered. I, you know, I, um, I remember thinking in the hospital, you know, that this is, here we go again. And for me to be able to say to my 14-year-old son, listen, kid, this is in God's hands, and we're gonna trust him with every step of this thing, and the outcomes are in his hands, and we're gonna do everything we can. He's given us lots of great tools, and we're gonna pursue every one of those tools that he's given us, but whatever happens, you know what? He is God, and it is his plan, and it is his purpose for our life, and we're gonna trust him. Here we are four years later, and we are a living, breathing miracle. And so Sam is, is here. He's doing phenomenally well. He's a manager at Oakland University. He manages their basketball team. And he's a freshman in college this year. If you look at life and you look at the challenges, you look at them through the, the lens of faith, you can see every color and it's really quite beautiful. The challenges that God has put in front of us Losing my wife, having my son go through frightening cancer, and all of the other experiences that we've had hasn't built my faith. It's revealed it to me. I'm not grateful for cancer. I'm not grateful for losing my wife. I'm not glad that we went through that. But the redemptive nature 
of our Lord Savior has revealed through that what my faith really is. What Matt taught me all those years ago um, is that truly God is worthy of our trust and that he, Matt's favorite scripture verse was from Matthew 6:33. It was, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You know, it was seek God first in all things and love others. Those were Matt's, you know, those were the first two commandments and those were sort of what Matt lived by and what he taught me and what we've been able to teach our children. And truly when you do those things, it doesn't give you a perfect life. It just gives you a way to hold on throughout life and, and have purpose and have gratitude in the midst of all of it. Yeah, such a, such a powerful story. Yeah, I got an email from Danny Cox, lead pastor at Troy, who uh, at, at Troy, they got them live. So if you want to go watch them talk about it live, you can do that as well on, on YouTube, but uh, he said even as they watch that story, you know, they've written a book, and they have a Hallmark movie made about it, and he said even as they watched the story that Kensington made the video team, they were blown away because they got really emotional watching that. And I mean, it's an emotional story, but I think a part of the emotion is seeing chapters of their life all compiled together and seeing the pain, but also seeing the beauty that's in the midst of it. From the book, Gina wrote this. She said, yes, into each life rain will fall, but there is something redeeming in the rain. It hides beauty that can only emerge after the storm has passed. As light enters each drop of rain, it splits the gray and transforms it into colors of the rainbow. The rain in our life brought Michael and his children to us. God's grace provided the light that refracted our colorless grief into something beautiful. Our season of storms was passing, and the true color of rain was being revealed to us. And I think there's a reality, like when you're going through storms, when you're going through hard things, when things are hard, you'll either run to God or you'll run from God. Because there's a nature when things are hard where it's like, man, this is your fault, I'm gonna get away. But I'm encouraging you, don't run away from the one who's comfort and hope when you need comfort and hope, run to him. It was interesting, even uh, Michael said his neighbor came up to him in the midst of all the lost and came up to him, I won't, I won't, I'll use the edited version, but the neighbor came up to him and said, wow, you must be really mad at God. And he said, without thinking, he said, how can I be mad at God when this is when I need him the most? He said he was shocked at the words that came out of his mouth, but it was a moment that, like he said, it revealed his faith that didn't build his faith. And so like, the, the question is like, how do you do that in the midst? How do you, how do you carry hope? How do you, how do you walk through that and carry hope within that? And man, I think it's clinging to the one who is hope. I've, I've heard it said like this, I'm not gonna get into a big theological thing right now, but it's my conviction, man, I don't think God authors evil because he's the author of life. And there are hard things that abound because of sin, because of brokenness, because of us using free will to destroy, because of, man, evil in the world and, man, darkness and the demonic. And there's things that, man, are hard. But I've heard it said by uh, William Paul Young. Some of you know him. He's the author of The Shack. I love what he says. He always says, God is a crazy, redeeming genius. I, I've ever heard him say that. And it just stuck with me because who says it like that? He's a crazy, redeeming genius. 
And I felt like as I was watching that video, what, what came to my mind is this reality, that nothing is too destroyed and too far gone to be repaired by God. Nothing is too far gone in your personal life and the circumstances around you that God cannot bring healing to. It says this in Isaiah 61, instead of ashes, the oil of joy, instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And I had a quote in my phone that came to my mind as I was watching that from C.S. Lewis. It says this, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And so one scripture that stuck out to me that's really been speaking to me lately is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Like, how do you worship while you wait? How do you, what do you do when you wait? And I believe you cling to Jesus in the midst of it. And I love 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. It says this, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And then verse seven says this, cast all your anxiety. Other translations say, cast all of your burdens on him because he cares for you. And that's something that's constant. That's something that's continual. I have a little visual illustration that I'll go through really quick. But I remember my mom, she called me a, a few weeks ago because she had a dream. And she said, I just had a dream. And I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because of it. But she said, I had a dream and you were walking and you had all these like cares and things you were thinking about. And I, in the dream, Jesus was walking with you and he had a satchel. And at any point you were walking, he was, it was a satchel for your burdens that you could just toss to him. And I was, I took, I took heart that Jesus has a satchel and not a man purse. <laughs> but what I've been thinking about is like this idea, this place of a relationship, like that verse, like humble yourselves before the Lord, which I mean, when you're humble, you go to someone because you need help. And there's this idea wherever you're at today that you can humble yourself before the Lord. Maybe it's getting on your knees before the Lord and it's just crying out with an honest prayer saying, God, I need you. I need you to meet me where I'm at. And it says, cast all your burdens, cast all your worries. Like when I think about that, it's like I literally visualize in my mind Jesus in front of me and giving him the things that are bringing me anxiety or, or weighing me down because the kingdom of God is a burdenless kingdom. If you have burdens over guilt of your past or things you've done, Jesus will take those. He took them on the cross. If you have shame about who you are, he will take those because he loves who he made you to be. If you have fears, if you have anxiety, Jesus says, come to me and cast your burdens upon me. And the way I thought about it is like this idea, like if this bases our life, right? You see these charcoal in here, these burdens. And look at this thing. Do you guys have this strainer? Boom. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what the infomercial shows are. But you have this, and it's like this is your life, and you have these burdens, and Jesus becomes this strainer that you come to him in relationship, and you cast your anxieties upon him, and you pour out your life to him in prayer. You pour out your life to him, and you humble him, right? And you pour out, and something happens. It, it purifies your life, and he starts to catch the burdens. And he starts to carry the weights. Now look at Gina. I look at Michael. Man, there's this process of probably... Like, this process you saw, it gets a little messy. But at the end of it, there's something pure that comes out. And believe me, you might have to come back because that boss you don't like, he's still at work. Those people that are bringing hardships, but you continually go back and you pour your burdens upon Jesus. And in that place, he starts to bring you rest. He starts to bring you clarity. He starts to use the things that are painful in your life and bring crazy redeeming power to them. And it's my hope that, man, as a church, when things are hard, we would be a people that run to God, not from God. And maybe the people 
Like God, the people he wants to carry your burdens isn't just him, but it's the community. It's the relationship of people. It's jumping in the alpha. It's joining a group here. It's surrounding yourself with people that when you don't have the strength to go forward, they will help carry the burdens. But here's the truth I want all of us to leave with today, that Jesus is with you and he wants to carry you. Jesus is with you and he is for you, that you can cast all of your burdens upon him and that it gets better. Whatever you're going through, no, it gets better. And here's the truth and we're gonna sing it. You might not feel like you're enough, but he is. And when you call out to him, he's faithful to come. He's faithful to meet you where you're at. So humble yourselves before God and cast all your burdens upon him and look to the light at the end of the tunnel and notice the light that's around you and notice today, for some of you, this message might apply to you in two years, but for some of you today, you are here today because Jesus is saying, I'm with you, it's gonna get better, keep moving forward, choose me, choose character, choose the kingdom. I'm ever before you, let me be your anchor, let me be your refuge, let me be your rock and it might be a little messy in the process, but cling to me and worship while you wait. So we're gonna end today just worshiping. I'm gonna pray for us, you guys can stand, but Father, we just thank you for who you are. And I pray right now, God, you release courage, you release hope into our hearts and into our souls. And as we worship Jesus, like in the mud flats, if we're in the storm, we'd worship all the louder. And we remind ourselves of who you are and the nature and your goodness, Jesus. We love you, Father, it's in your name we pray, amen.